Would you, let's, uh, Carl, would you come on up? And we're going we're gonna to do something kind of fun today, uh, something that we don't do often. And we're going to co-teach through the morning as we wrap up our mini-series on marriage. So, tag team preaching. There you go. Hey, I wanted to welcome you also. Um, last hour we, um, we gave a special greeting to Stephen Goff and Natalie Schumacher, and I told everybody they're going to get married on Friday night. It's Saturday. So if you see them, we'll, we'll make that clear. Um, I wanted also to uh, introduce, if you don't know, Dean and Etta Dunham celebrate their 65th wedding anniversary today. <laughs> God bless you. Awesome. So what we're doing here is we're, we want to talk to you today a, a little bit different. Not so much teaching, but really talking about what are we going to do. For these past weeks, we've been talking particularly about marriage uh, right out of Ephesians 5. If you want to open your Bibles there, open them up to Ephesians chapter 5 and, and look again, if you would. You remember that the, um, the imperative from Paul is found in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he begins to talk about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. What will be the results and the, and the things that happen in our life when we are filled with the Spirit? And when we draw, I want to draw your attention down to verse 21. One of those results is that we will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we've been talking for these weeks, particularly about marriage. Um, and then we'll go on next week and talk more about children and parents and slaves and masters. And then we'll talk about the armor of God and we'll keep going through Ephesians. But we thought, since we have spent these weeks talking, particularly focusing on marriage and marriage relationships, that we wanted to spend one more Sunday talking about not really doing, reteaching everything, but asking you to decide, to believe, and to do. So this is a little bit of a different kind, kind of a message. And I, I just want to remind you about what the Word of God says to us. Um, one, one of the places that come to my mind is in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus concludes his sermon with that little illustration about the wise man who builds his house on the rock. Remember that? We did the little song when we were kids about the wise man. Anyway, so he says that the wise man who builds his house on the rock is someone who hears my words and literally does them. Somebody who hears and does when Jesus gathered his disciples together for the Last Supper, you remember he, he got down on his knees and he washed their feet as a sign of his love for them. And the fact, a demonstration one more time, that he was a servant. That he came not to be served, but to serve. And when he, when he got finished washing their feet, he, he said to them, I'm your, you, you call me Lord and Master and you do it rightly because that's who I am. And then he said, because I've done this for you, You must do it for one another. And then he said, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Now that you know, you'll be blessed if you do. James echoes the same thing in James chapter 1, verse 22. And he says, do not merely listen to the word, but do what it says. So here's here's the problem. And and we particularly know it because we teach the Bible. Um, It's one thing to listen and even to know and to hear, and it's another thing to do it. And, of course, we wrestle with this, too. Even as as preachers and teachers, we try to share with you, and then we 
we're always thinking to ourselves, am I doing this, what I'm telling other people to do? And, and I know it, we know it's really easy for us to hear and listen and to know and not to do. So this morning is about doing. It's not really about hearing and listening so much. It's more about doing. So what we're telling you today, and something that you already know if you know the Word of God, is that God really wants us to hear, and He wants us to listen, and He wants us to know. But most of all, He wants that hearing, listening, and knowing to translate into actual obedience. And no, you'll be blessed if you do them. That we will glorify God most, not by hearing, not by listening, not even by knowing and writing notes and understanding things, and even being able to repeat it. We will glorify most, particularly in our relationships, if we will do what the Word of God says. So what we're talking about this morning is we want to share with you, we've we've looked back into this passage and we've pulled out what we believe are five crucial things that we must not only hear and listen and know, but we must do. And so in your note sheet, you'll see these words, I will believe and I will act. Does this make sense to you this morning? So this is our exhortation, and when we exhort you, we're really exhorting ourselves also, uh, because we know that we fall short and we have a long ways to go on these things also. But what we're going to ask you to do in each of these five things is we're going to ask you to take a step of obedience. We're going to ask you, do you believe this, that this is the Word of God, and do you believe this is God's design for your life, and will you act on it? Because it doesn't really do us much good for us to hear. In fact, it does us harm to hear and listen and and understand and not to do. Are you still with me? Now, here's, here's the problem of life, right? I mean, here's where we are. So we need, as followers of Jesus Christ, to hear, listen, and know, and to do. So we're going to ask you, will you believe and will you do? Are you with us? Okay, where do we begin? Let's start. Well, we begin with hope, actually, right? So what you encounter when you read scripture is you get a story of a God who is very relational at the core. Who God is and how he describes himself is is relational. His self-description in Exodus 34, after his people had just uh, worshipped an idol that was just, they had made it out of their own jewelry. And and, and this God who, who, who is righteously upset with them, relates to them and he says here's who I am I'm a God who is compassionate and gracious um, uh, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness uh, full of steadfast love to the thousandth generation maintaining uh, or forgiving iniquity transgression and sin and maintaining justice right Uh, so this God relates to us and, and and by the time you get through the end of the Old Testament into the New Testament, you begin realizing the story of Jesus. It comes as the fulfillment of the story of the Old Testament. It, you get this description of God that is even more relational. Jesus describes himself as the Son, who's in relationship with the Father, and they're in relationship with the Spirit. And the three persons are God, and yet they are different persons. They're one and three. They're a community of persons in relationship from the beginning. And so when you understand the fundamental nature of God is relational, it changes everything, right? It actually makes our relationships of utmost importance because these are the most important parts of our lives to God, who we are in relation to the other. Make sense so far? And what happens is when life kind of begins to pick up its momentum as we grow, we 
acquire hurts and we acquire uh, angst and we we acquire these 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 things that we call baggage, right? It's this brokenness in our lives, and we begin to despair of relationships because it's in relationships that we're wounded. But God also says to us that it is in relationships that we are healed, and so God is actually calling us in the Book of Ephesians to believe that we have hope for our relationships. Now, since we're talking specifically about marriage, um, we have a great story to share with you. Um, This is a story of a couple in our own church who believed in in, in spite of their brokenness, right? just like our brokenness, that there's actually hope because of who Jesus is and what he did. And so they committed themselves to doing something about it. Check it out. If you peek into the Russell household today, this is what you'll see. A busy family, yes, but one that is full of joy and laughter. But four years ago, eight years into their marriage, this scene did not exist. Instead of happiness, there was anger and pain and a marriage that was dangerously close to ending. I don't want to say I was done as far as I had a lawyer and filing, but I was done trying to forgive and I was done trying to make it better. I just couldn't breathe in my household. It was the first time that it had been voiced like this. It was finally like a baseball bat to the head. Boom, this is serious. And it was all of a sudden, there's the cliff. Family members encouraged them to seek counseling and were praying for them. And God answered by sending his people at the right time. Anna met one-on-one with Katie Crane and J.D. with Bob Buckendorf. After we chatted for a while, to me it seemed like it was almost hopeless. It had been years of really a lot of trouble. And uh, well, I, don't, you know, I don't think anything's hopeless. But after he shared kind of the trajectory of what had gone on in their marriage, I was really pessimistic that they could heal the marriage. He asked me the tough questions and never was one that always sided with me. He would ask me deeper intellectual questions. Um, How do you think this would relate to this situation? Or um, give me an example of how you respected Anna this week. He said just write and just see what comes out. And it was really therapeutic. I had one of my biggest epiphanies while writing it um, in a time where I was angry with Anna. And I just continued to write on, I wonder if this is how she feels when I do this. Immediately as soon as I wrote it, I was like, wow, I've got a lot of work to do. And so for the next five months, J.D. gradually changed his focus from how can I fix this marriage to how can I be the man God wants me to be. Eventually, Anna would see this change, but trust had to be established first. Her turning point? I remember my brother-in-law, Jeff, saying to me, you know, people have personality traits that they've had all their lives. You can't expect them to change in a week, in two weeks. And um, that really hit home for me because now I could see the effort, even if it wasn't perfect. And you can't expect perfection while you're changing. Following that very conversation, for the first time, Anna invited JD to a joint counseling session. It was at this session where the first signs of God's healing hands began to appear. After that, they agreed to take it slow, start dating again, and get to know each other on a deeper level from their newfound perspectives. 
the romantic thought that that he was battling for this, he he was fighting for this, he he wasn't going to let go, was um, finally showing me that that he wanted this, that he wanted me, that um, that he loved me and respected me. I think a key verse is Philippians 4:8. So it says, "Whatever is true." and honorable and just, whatever is pure and lovely and gracious. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. And so instead of how to fix them, what they're doing wrong, to think about what's good about them. Anna and J.D. say their marriage today is stronger than it's ever been because of this. They have found a way to love deeper, the way God intended us to love our spouses, with great respect, honesty, compassion, patience, and to choose to do so every day. I am honest when I say that I have my best friend that I get to see every day, and it's so far ahead of where it was before. I don't want to think about anything other than how much more I can figure out about him and how much more I can discover and um, just keep this momentum going and I never want to feel like, oh good, we're in a great spot now. I always want to be trying harder and I always want to be learning more. Instead of being mad with each other and indifferent and going their separate way, now they're friends and they cooperate and they're doing things together because they enjoy each other and that's because they've allowed God to change their hearts. Right. Yeah. So we clap for what the grace of God accomplishes when we yield to Him. What a great example of two people who are willing to take ownership of their own stuff as well as yield to Jesus as Lord right? and His way. And they give us an example actually of taking wisdom humbly and in community, right? And as well as doing the work of partnering with God and being redeemed. And isn't that always how it works? That, that God does the thing that only God can do, and He gives the grace that only God can give, and yet He still asks us to join Him in that work, mm-hmm. right? He, in John 5, He says to the man who was crippled, He's like, Do you want to get well? I love, I love that Jesus asked the question, right? Yeah. Do, do you, you're sitting there, and like, do you actually want to get better? And then he gave him something to do in faith. Get up and walk, which is really remarkable. He, he asks us to join with him. And so for us, um, one thing I hope you'll notice from that, there is this expectation of growth and change. Right? That, that when we assume that our relationship is stuck, that the other person is static, that they're not going to grow, then we, we actually begin to lose hope. Right? And so we can freeze frame a person in their brokenness in one moment in their life or in one habit in their life. And God's calling us to see their primary identity, the other, right? whoever we are in relationship with, not primarily as their failure and their brokenness, but as who they are in Christ, which is the message of Ephesians over and over again, that who you are is not your failure, nor is it your success. It is ultimately who you are in Christ. You are the beloved of God. So we could talk about this for a long time, but for the... We have four other points. And let me just bring this to a point of faith for us. Do I believe that my relationship is not beyond the power and grace of Jesus 
to restore? Do I believe that he is greater and bigger than the problems I experience with this person? That's the question. And then what do we do as a result? Mm. Very simply, you ask for help. If you're in a place of crisis, like they were, it's so necessary to get help. But even if you're in a good place, right? A good, we're, we're okay, right? Which is a word from, like, that is vague and it means nothing. If you ever ask somebody how they're doing and they say okay, it's like, that means nothing, right? Mm. <laughs> it means I'm breathing. So, what do we really, so whatever you, wherever you're at, help is not a bad thing, right? We have to remove the stigma that counseling or help or whatever is bad and you've failed. What it is, is you've copped up to being human. So welcome to the party. You need help too. And so get with two or three trusted people and say, we want to be accountable to growing. These are our places of stagnation. Identify them. Talk to each other about them if you can without exploding. And say, where are we stuck? Where are we hurting each other? Where are we spilling out wounds on each other? Where do we need to grow? And get some people around you and say, we want to grow. Help us make a plan and hold us to it. Check in with us. Don't let us go off the rails. Um, one thing that I would recommend, too, is like if you're, if you're doing fine, let's say you're just beginning, get a counselor or somebody who is ahead of you, wiser than you, walks a marriage that you respect, and like submit to them like once a year, check in, do a tune-up. Once a year, right? And then let's say things go bad. Five years in, what happens? You've got somebody that knows your story, and they can call you out on your bluffs, and they can help you, right? On and on we could go about this, but do we believe that the power and grace of Jesus is bigger than our problems, and am I willing to ask somebody else to come alongside me and actually help me? Okay, Carl? Yeah. There are a few things that are absolutely fundamental, crucial for us to have the kind of relationships that God wants us to have, for him to receive the glory and for us to experience the kind of joy and effectiveness that God really wants us to experience. There's, there's some basic things. And of course, one of these is hope in God, that God is sufficient and able, that God can do abundantly beyond anything we would ask or think. Remember that from Ephesians chapter 3? You do remember it? This is a God who can act and will act. Okay, another principle, if you will, or another fundamental thing that's absolutely essential for us is to have a heart of submission, a heart of submission. Now, if you want to start a conflict or difficulty, talk about submission today or submitting. It's not a popular word and basically our flesh resists it. But when you know the Word of God, and the more that you know the Word of God, and the more that you understand about relationships, the more you begin to see that this is what God does. To be filled with the Spirit of God, He then says, now submit. Place your heart in a place. Bring yourself under God's rule. And then what God... God has this amazing ability to put us in places all the time where we must submit. And if we're going to have the kind of relationships that we we really want to have, we must submit. And if we try to get out from underneath that, then God puts us in another situation. I've experienced this, and probably you have also. Now, we ha- we've tried to talk in these weeks about, look, submission is not about being exploited. It's not about submitting to abuse. It's not giving yourself or submitting to an evil command. It's not that kind of submission. What we're talking about is a, is a heart attitude uh, of a servant, a heart attitude of bringing myself 
to the place where I'm willing to submit to what it is that God wants to do in this relationship. It, it's, really, it's really about being more and more like Jesus. He was a servant. He had a servant's heart. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. So when we've gone through Ephesians, we see it says, wives, submit to your husbands. And we talked about that. And then the next verses are about husbands now. Love your wives. And Matt talked about that a couple of weeks ago and how, how crucial that is. That, that really husbands loving your wives really is submission. That the very best kind of love is always a submissive love. If you love someone, you're going to submit to who they are and what it is they need. You're going to look at them and care about them. And you're going to bring yourself under them in the sense that you're going to try to do what is the very best for them. This is what love does. You cannot love apart from submission. In fact, this is one of the ways that you can evaluate how mature your love is for someone. Am I consistently, day by day, day in and day out, submitting to who they are and what it is they need? Now, we're not talking about injustice here or evil or any of those kind of things, not about abuse. We're talking about in normal everyday life circumstances, what does it mean for me to be more and more like Christ? We are to submit to one another. This is a being like Jesus. Remember the old thing that people used to do, what would Jesus do? You know, we had bracelets and necklaces and all kinds of... Well, that's still the question. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus want of me in this relationship? So now I have to ask you, we've been talking about this for a few weeks, do you believe... That it is the design of God that you have a growing heart of submission. That's either yes or no. What about you? In your life, in your relationship with the people you know. See, the problem here is that when, when preachers stand up here, and we, you know, we make it sound really like easy maybe, but you're thinking about someone, and maybe that face is right there and you're thinking, you want me to... Uh. Okay. And the problem is, is that God is often calling us to submit or be, have a submissive heart to people that are really, frankly uncomfortable or that are very difficult to submit to. And then we go to the place where do I have to do this bad thing in order to be submissive? So will you just try to set that aside for a moment and let me ask you again, is it the will and design of God for your heart to be an increasingly submissive heart of service. Yes or no. This is the will of God, isn't it? Okay, now then, what are you going to do? How will you act then? What is it that God wants you to do towards this person? Maybe we'll talk about a particular person or maybe about a situation. Maybe it's a work situation. Maybe it's home. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's neighborhood. I, I don't really know what your situation is. But if you believe this is God's design for you, what are you going to do to more and more reflect the servant heart of Christ? What are you going to do? How will you act? Are you writing stuff down? What is God saying to you? Do you believe it? Will you act? Ah, okay, that's one. There was one guy that said he would. One, one guy, okay. That's good. That's success. <laughs> For preachers, yes. Uh, so, um, what, one thing I forgot, uh, under, the, under the Hope for Marriages piece, we, we have a, a slide for a marriage oh, conference. Yeah. It's coming up in November. Um, two things you could utilize. Every pastor on this staff would love to spend time with you and be, be of assistance 
may not be able to fix everything, but they will be an encourager and probably be able to help you in a good direction. The other thing is this marriage conference. The National Institute of Marriage is putting on a conference here. We have a speaker coming out um, November 8th and 9th. I think it's, is it $59 wrong per couple, right? It's a great date. So plan plan for that, budget for that, plan ahead for that, and that'll be good for, for any any marriage. All right, so... The next, the next piece um, that we think Ephesians is saying to us is, is pretty important, and that is that being responsible is actually greater than being reactionary. Uh, a couple months ago, uh, I'm trying to teach Penny, my five-year-old, how to ride a bike, and uh, she was really having a hard time with it, right? Like, I, she was just jumping off of the bike when it was getting too fast, you know? Like, she was not actually applying her brakes. Like, no matter how many times I did, like, pedal backwards and it stops. She would just jump off. I'm like, you're going to kill yourself. So I'm stressing out as a dad. Right? I'm like, I really want you to be able to get this down for your own safety and for your fun. Like, I want you to enjoy this. And so I'm teaching her, like, all the little technicalities of this thing, and I'm probably doing it wrong. Anyways, I think she detects a little bit of frustration from me, and she looks at me, and she's like, Dad. She's like off of her bike holding it. Dad, how about this? How about we go back in the house, and then we just talk about riding bikes for a little bit? (laughs) And I'm like, how how church is that, right? Like, let's just talk about obedience a little bit longer. Let's talk about forgiveness. We don't need to go do it. Like, let's just talk a little bit more about let's have another Bible study. And then we can feel good about the fact that we got more knowledge about it without actually doing anything. And so she wanted kind of all of the information without any of the risk. And she also, that also meant none of the enjoyment. Well, anyway, she's committed to doing it. Like, the girl got on her bike and just kept at it uh, in circles in our garage. And now she's got it down, right, out in the neighborhood. And she's doing really good. And she's having a blast. And uh, anyway, I, I bring this up because... The reality is we can expend an awful lot of energy just kind of talking about stuff. And it's usually talking about the other person's problems, right? And so we can spend a lot of energy kind of deflecting, just reacting to the other rather than taking responsibility for ourselves to actually enact the kind of life Christ calls us to. And so, you know, this this alternative to reacting is actually taking responsibility, taking initiative and saying, who am I becoming in this relationship? Uh, chemistry, right, this, this sense of we really connect together, chemistry gets us together oftentimes in a relationship, right? whether with good friends or in a marriage relationship, a dating relationship. Chem- chemistry gets the, the ball rolling. But it's character that keeps it going, right? It's character that keeps us united. Where chemistry gets us together, character actually keeps us together. And and, and character isn't cultivated by constantly working on the other person. Have you ever noticed that, right? That you don't grow when you focus on their problems. In fact, strange thing, they don't grow either, right? They just get further from you because they're mad at you for like... Why are you controlling me? So the thing is, what are we responsible to? Ephesians is written with this kind of rhetoric to it. Half of the book is theology, uh, and the other half of the book is kind of application of the theology. right? And so in the middle is this, this call to walk worthy of the gospel, of our calling in Christ. And, and Paul's saying to us, look, 
This is who you are, and I'm, I'm trying to get you to live out of that, to be worthy of the call that you already are. And so, because that's your identity, I want you to actually do something. And so, if you read the book and do what the author is intending, you will take responsibility for your own character and own conduct in a relationship. I, I just spent like three hours this week with one couple, uh, like over the phone, and at one point I just had to stop the husband, and I was like, do, do you hear yourself? Like, all you are saying is what's wrong with her, right? And and none of what you're doing, and it was like, she doesn't respect me, right? And it was like, it's like that line in Dumb and Dumber, where it's like, she said something about me not listening enough. I don't know, I wasn't really paying attention. I was like, what? Like, she doesn't respect me. And she was, he was like berating her for it. And I was like, yeah, she doesn't because you're treating her like in a way that isn't respectable. So you know what would happen if you spent the next six years working on being respectable? Prop, she'd probably respect you. I don't know. I'm just... My money's on the fact that she will actually respond positively to you working on your character and loving her. So if you are reading through Ephesians and you come to the end of this section on husbands and wives, in verse 33 there's this really pithy little axiom for how marriage works well. Husbands, he says, like, that each of you love your wife as himself and let the wife See that she respects her husband. It's this need, this innate need in women to be loved and this innate need in men to be respected. And, and so if you believe that it's your responsibility to act in a loving way no matter how they make you feel or in a respectful way no matter how they make you feel in that moment, you're engendering a reciprocal response rather than demanding it. You're actually focusing on what you can change rather than what you can't change. And it's much less frustrating to work on your own character than somebody else's. So we're called to take responsibility for ourselves and to ask our spouses, what does it feel like to be loved right now? What is not feeling loving? What does it feel like to be respected? What, what cuts you down and makes you feel like you are not respected? And then what do you do when you ask that question? Listen, there's wisdom from Glenn in the front row. Listen, right? And then with, with our guard down as much as possible, we hear it and then respond to it. So you commit to take responsibility for yourself in your relationship, in your own character, right? Instead of focusing on bad chemistry, focus on your character. Chemistry will come, right? And then asking the hard questions. What does it really feel like for you to be loved or to be respected? Now, for those of us who are, who are single, uh, this series might feel almost like strange or like alienating, but I hope you're looking in on it with two, two perspectives. One, you are a complete and whole person without a spouse, right? This is the message of the gospel, that, that you need no other person besides Christ to make you whole, right? And that you have a responsibility to carry out your mission. Like you have this freedom now in Christ to be all in with all of your concerns around the kingdom. Right? And, and so you, what is your responsibility? It is, again, your own character. Some of you will be contentedly single for the rest of your life and you will say, I'm on mission with God. I'm going to take responsibility for God's calling on my life. Others of you will be seeking somebody. I think of the high school group right there. The middle school group, please don't seek somebody yet. High school group, like... Right? I was your pastor for a long time, so I was like, please, hold up. 
high schoolers, I know, like there's this engine and it's like running. You're like, I want intimacy. I want connection. And so you think that I need to be with someone to be validated, right? To be someone. But it's not just high schoolers that think that, right? It's the whole adult population in North America, right? That you need someone who will fulfill your desires and make you happy. And let me just say this. Don't buy the lie that you need another person to make you whole besides Christ. What you, the best thing, high schoolers, that you can do in this season of your life is grow a deep relationship with Jesus where you grow your character so that you have a gift to your spouse someday. A spouse that isn't needy, but is centered. Right? A spouse that has preserved their heart and body as a gift for a union and a marriage. So don't buy the lie that the culture tells us that, in fact, casual, com- casual relationships are the most fulfilling. Right? Because you know what that is? It's consumerism with people. What it is, is it says, the other people exist for my fulfillment and my pleasure. And when I'm done with you, I move on. But what's it like to be on the receiving end of that? It is not good, right? What the Bible is calling us to is, rather than the casual relationships of consumer pleasure, the Bible is saying, look, I want you to have committed relationships, right? Where the, the best relationships aren't necessarily the ones where you just feel lots of love, but the ones where you do acts of love. So by that calling, okay, and become those kinds of people rather than looking for that kind of person for you. Does that make sense? Take responsibility for who you're becoming more than who you're finding. The other piece is parents. What kind of marriage are you modeling? Are you modeling the kind of marriage that would encourage our high school and middle school kids to say, I want nothing to do with that? Are you modeling ones that say, I can't wait to have that, right? Because I see how they interact together. Do you want a marriage that you're, you just can't wait for your kids to have something like yours? Your responsibility is to cultivate that in your home, right? Not just to take responsibility for your character, but also to take responsibility for what you model. It's... And it's joyful, isn't it? And it's fulfilling when your kids come home and they say, I'm so glad you acted like this towards dad because that helped me. I still tell my parents that frequently. Like, hey, thanks, thanks for the good example of loving mom. Because that helps me every day to realize my life isn't about me. All right. Responsibility. Will I believe that it's mine and will I take it? Will I ask the people I'm in relationship to, what does it feel to be loved and respected by you? I took way more than five minutes. That's okay. Good. Um, one of the things that um, you learn when you've been around for a few decades is how the culture is moving and how it is that we who are, believe in Jesus Christ and want to follow him and believe in the word of God, how, how the dynamic in the world changes and how it is that the struggle, if you will, how it is that we make application today. Um, I have noticed for the past 30 years or so that the whole thing about male leadership has really slidden in our culture. Things are really different today than they were a few decades ago. And so when you talk about male leadership or a man being the head of the home, people go, people cringe 
And, and they're really uncertain about what it even means. So I want to talk to you um, for just a couple minutes. Um, and wives, um, women, uh, I want to talk to your man. So you can just tune out for a moment if you'd like. Um, the only thing I would ask of you is please don't roll your eyes. <laughs> no sign, you know, no el- elbow nudging, you know, just, yeah. Um, Men, my brothers, listen to me. God made you to lead. You know it. You have it in your heart. You know that you're wired that way. Sometimes you don't know what to do today, and we're not sure exactly what male leadership is. What does it mean to lead in the home? What, is, what, is, what does it mean to be a man today? It's confusing. And so I know that this is really not politi- politically correct or even very comfortable to talk about. And I also know, and what you know also, that women are leaders. Of course they are. Uh, and women are strong leaders, and a lot of our wives are better leaders than we are. So can I just say to you, I know this stuff, and... We can spend so much time talking about what we don't mean that we don't ever get to what we do mean. So I want to tell you what I mean. I want to tell you that men are designed by God to be leaders. So I want to say to you, men, lead. You are a man. God designed you to be a man. It doesn't mean you don't submit to your wife many times. It doesn't mean you make all the decisions. It doesn't have anything to do about superiority. It doesn't have anything to do about smarts. It doesn't mean that you know more, understand more, are wiser, or any of those kind of things. A lot of times our, the very best kind of leadership is trying to figure out what the best thing and asking our wives, what is it? I want to say to you, brothers, that the Word of God is pretty clear about our responsibility to lead. Now, one of... One, sometimes we put the words together in our church that our, that our elders and our pastors are servant leaders. That they've been called to serve in terms of a leadership role and that we then submit to their spiritual leadership. And we do this voluntarily. We don't have to. You could just leave and go to another church if you didn't like it, and some people do. But, but we voluntarily submit. And, and the very best kind of a spiritual leader is a servant leader. So maybe that will help you if you put the two words together. When I say men lead, I'm, I'm saying to you, men, servant lead. Lead like a servant. Lead like Jesus will serve. Outdo anybody else in your family in terms of your role as a servant. It's men who, who have got to discern what, what is happening to our culture and what is it your role is to be in these days? What does it mean for you as a man of God to lead like a man of God? I want to suggest some things. You, you need to decide a few things. That doesn't mean you decide apart from your wife, but you need to decide. You need to make some decisions and you need to lead. Things like, well, I had a guy not too long ago talk to me and just say, you know, we've decided to come to church every Sunday. I said, Good. He said, well, you don't understand, for, for the last 10 years we've been getting up every Sunday morning trying to decide then. And I just got convicted about it, and so I told my wife, lovingly and submissively, we're going to go to church every Sunday. And she said, all right, right? I mean, so he decided, you know, and she has been waiting for a long time for him to lead in that way. Uh, brothers, pray with your wives. Lead in praying. Uh, I've talked to so many Men and women who they never pray together. The only time they ever pray together is in close proximity, is in a church building. This ought not to be. My brothers, pray with your wife. 
He said, I don't know where to begin. If I started praying with my wife and say, let's pray together, she'd laugh me out of the room. Maybe so. Uh, but I want to say to you, it's still your responsibility. So what do you do? Well, you could do a very simple kind of thing for when you eat a dinner together, eat a lunch together. You can reach out and take her hand and just thank God you got food to eat in the house. And, and I mean, you can start there. Start, But lead. Step out. Take, take a few risks. Lead in trusting God for money. Lead that in trusting God that God's going to meet your needs and that you can be generous and that you can be sacrificial. Lead. Step out in faith. Lead in pursuing the glory of God for your relationship. Think about this, brothers. There isn't anybody more responsible for your marriage and your family than you. Of course your wife is responsible. But I want to say to you, you, you have been given responsibility before God to try to discern what is this relationship, this home, this family, my children, my marriage, what should it be? And brothers, you are the ones that God has given a primary responsibility. Lead. Lead as a servant. Lead as a lover. Lead, lead, as some, lead in affection without an expectation for sex. Uh, lead in gentleness, lead in humility, uh, lead in giving yourself, lead in caring for your kids, talk to your children, spend time with your kids. Lead in, in ways that, that sometimes only your wife knows. So what do you do? You ask her. You say, what do we need? You know, what do we need in our family? You know, I'm talking to my wife a lot in these days saying, what? What do you need in this particular time in our life? And have you noticed that there are phases in life and that we need different things at different times? Lead in listening. Lead in bringing your wife close to you. Lead in sharing your heart. They just want to know what you're thinking and feeling and what your vision is for the future. There's nothing quite like that. And the man needs to lead. This whole thing about the quiet man who never says anything... He is not a leader. My brothers, you need to dispense with that. Lead in studying the Word of God. How many times have I heard over the years that my wife knows way more about the Bible than I do? I want to say that is a terrible sadness in your relationship. And you need to commit the next few years of your life to fix that. My brothers, you need to read the Word of God. You need to study the Word of God. You need to be a spiritual leader in your home. You need to do this with your children. My brothers, it is the design of God that you lead, that you be a servant, loving leader. Do you believe this is the will of God for you? My brothers, I'm looking you in the eye as best I can. Men, has God called you to this? Yes or no? All right, now, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? If you believe that God's Spirit is saying this to you, and that this is true, this isn't just a preacher saying to you, you know this is God's design for you, and you've really known it for a long time, and I'm just echoing something you've known for a long time, but you know you've let this slide. So I'm asking you, what are you going to do about it? You must do something, otherwise this will be in the category of knowing, hearing, and listening, and not obeying. And it will be like one more coat on your heart, and five years from now you might not be any more of a spiritual leader than you are now. What are you going to do? This would be something that would be good for you actually to write down. This would be good for you to talk to the woman God gave to you and say, I think I need to do this. This isn't about how well she responds, by the way. 
If you're afraid of how she's going to respond, then you really need to be a leader. My brothers, I'm saying to you, it is the will of God for you to lead. Do you believe it? Let me ask you again. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do? This is a part of the message where it maybe begins to feel like, well, gosh, those, that's a lot of things to do. That's like four things so far. It's a list to check off. It's like this new law. Are you guys trying to import like a law on us? And you can listen to this sermon and you can think, gosh, I need to do better and try harder. And there's a tinge of truth to that. That's not your deepest need, actually. Your deepest need isn't even to just like go do stuff. It's deeper. It's it's to be to believe something, right? The most important thing in all of this, right? Because this isn't moralism. This isn't like I do in order to receive acceptance and love from God. I do in order to be a success at spiritual life. Right? To, it's, this is actually about responding to the gospel, the good news that Jesus is Lord, the message of what Christ has done. That God has come toward humanity to, to come to sin and brokenness and to redeem and to pick us up and to embrace us into himself. And he did so through his outstretched hands on the hard wood of the cross. And he says, there... Right? By the outpouring of love in, 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 in Jesus giving himself and his life, what happens is there you are reconciled to God. That, that there you experience the, this outflowing of love that God has for you. And what it does is it begins to warm and change your own heart. And so rather than looking at this message as like this external list of things I have to do, really it's this response of out of the inside of who I am. I respond to God. I partner with Him. And I, I do this because I, I love. And I love because I'm so deeply loved by God. Is this making sense to you? This comes out of our affections. Right? This isn't really ultimately about our accomplishments. Right? This is coming out of our affections, the deepest part of who we are, because it's there that we're touched by this love and acceptance and grace of God that puts our identity in Christ and says, this is who you are. You're defined by Jesus, not your flesh. And when you believe that, it actually enables you to live in a new way. It gives you the resources and the hope and the ability to actually operate in relationships like we're talking about. Rather than just trying harder to be better, we focus on who is Christ. That he was the one who ultimately redeemed us in relationship. So of course I can have hope because I know that I've been redeemed. So also my relationships can be redeemed. We're able to move towards this this selfless, or not selfless, but a non-self-centered, servant-like submission with each other because that's how Christ has treated us. I don't need to look out for numero uno because I've got my biggest validation and security in Christ. I can actually take responsibility for my life. I don't have to be afraid because I have this wealth of acceptance in the Lord because of what he's done. That I can actually take the initiative and lead like a servant 
giving myself away because that's how God has treated me. And so when you live like that, when you grab hold of the gospel, it actually gives you the resources to live the way that we're talking about. And not until you grab hold of the gospel will you have the chance to actually do it. Everything, otherwise, it'll just be law. But here it's actually a new life that bubbles up from the inside, from our hearts, that are changed by the good news of who Jesus is. And so we're called then to get with Jesus, to be filled constantly by the news of what he's done. Right? Is it, are you tapping into this message on a daily basis? This isn't like, I made a decision a long time ago, and so I'm fine. It's, I'm in relationship with the Lord of the universe, and in that relationship, I am constantly being nurtured with a new awareness of who I am and what God has done for me. And when you live like that, it gives you the resources to live the way we've been talking about this morning. It's actually good news. And And it leads to joy and fulfillment, rather than oppression and bondage to a law, because the Spirit of God comes into our lives and changes us from the inside out. So we celebrate this and we commemorate this by taking what we call communion together. And so as the ushers go and prepare to bring us communion as we, as we worship and, and, and sing in response to Christ and what he's done, I would like to ask you to, to ask yourself this hard question of, Where am I in relationship with Christ? Am I in a place where I am so affected by who Jesus is that I can't help but live a response of obedience? And so the call for us this morning is to actually believe deeply the gospel. And out of that faith, out of that belief, to actually live in line with it. To say, my life reflects that I'm actually a redeemed person because of the grace and the merit of Jesus. So what I'm going to ask you to do is they bring the communion elements forward. Again, this is this meal that represents something. It represents the body of Christ given for us, for our brokenness, to put us back together as whole people. It's his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This idea that there's this new covenant, new agreement between God and humanity where he wipes us clean. The things we bring to the table that are like defiled and messed up, he says, are cleansed through the shedding of Christ's blood. And do I believe that I'm a new person and clean and restored today because of him? If so, then here's what I'm going to ask you to do as they come forward. Will you, quietly before God, commit yourself to actually doing what we talked about this morning. To actually saying, I'm going to take a step in hope and redemption. I'm going to take a step in this mutual submission. I'm going to take a step in owning my own stuff and taking responsibility for the character that I'm becoming. I'm going to take a step in leadership because I'm going to get with Jesus and believe his message. How about, uh, we'll have them come forward, take the bread and the cup and hold it in your hands as we worship together and we'll take it together as one body in a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this new covenant, this idea that you are relating to the world through Jesus and through him. We can stand free before you, uncondemned, totally forgiven, right, built up, empowered, and sent out to reflect you in the world as your partners. Help us today to respond in obedience because of belief. 
Will you help us with that? Will you help us be captivated by the love of Jesus as we take this meal together? In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.